It's True Crime Tuesday. That means we've got murder, mystery, and mayhem for you. Tonight, the case of a man who had it all. But in what order did he decide to destroy his own life? Tonight on True Crime Tuesday. The growing calls across the nation to defund the police. To end policing as we know it. Off the charts violence in New York City. 11 people shot in just eight hours on this is Sunday. About the police officers, officers who every single day put on that uniform and they run towards danger when we run away from it. Guns up, giddy up, wolf pack. It's failure to stop your favorite podcast. Failure to stop is the number one podcast and platform where we entertain and inform first responders and their friends. My name's John. I'm a 911 dispatcher, former correctional officer. I'm joined by our host, Kendra Drama. She's a former police officer down in Florida, which, along with Wisconsin, is the state where the most crimes are taking place. Uh, Kendra is here to bring us the story tonight of the tote murders. Kendra, I'm going to ask you real quick, how are you doing today, ma'am? It's been a while since I've seen you. I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. You're hanging out with, you know, same old, same old, (laughs) hanging out with the dogs. Uh, Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) Before we get the show going, I'm going to do a couple ad reads so, so we can pay the bills. Folks, this show is brought to you by Ghostbed. Ghostbed is a great company. They uh, have been sponsors of Failure Stop since way back in the beginning. Since long before I got here, they support first responders and veterans, and that's why they pay for the show. You're going to want to go to ghostbed.com, use the offer code WOLFPACK. Ghostbed creates uh, wonderful uh, beds and mattresses that can help you have an excellent night's sleep. They have proprietary cooling technology in the pillows and their mattresses. They have adjustable frames. They have a wide array of wonderful uh Items for you to look at on their website. If you use our offer code Wolfpack, you get 40% off, I believe. Since it's the holidays, you might see a better deal. Go ahead and find, use whatever you find there, but just put mention Wolfpack in the comments as you check out so they know that we sent you there. That way they keep supporting the podcast. We uh, appreciate Ghostbed. Like I said, they're wonderful products. Uh, you can get those even if you have... Uh, you know, volunteer firefighter credit, 0% down, 0% financing. They make it all possible for you. Of course, we love Ghostbed most of all because the mattresses are made in the good old USA. 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 Well, USA. Well, we tried. Seriously, though, folks, if you love failure to stop, then go over and buy a Ghostbed. That's the best way to support us as we head into the fourth quarter and the new year. We appreciate it. Also, supporting the show is Factor Meals. Folks, if you just wake up in the morning from your ghost bed and you want to have a good meal, Factor Meals can make that happen. They can bring it right to your house. Go to Factor Meals and use the offer code WOLFPACK50. You can get 50% off to get started. They have over 300 options of fresh meals. They're prepared by chefs. You get to choose what you like. You have it delivered right to your house. You have all kinds of different options. If you want to have uh, carb-conscious, uh, protein-heavy, keto, whatever it is you're going for, if you want to just have a diet of straight pasta, they can make that happen. They'll bring it right to your house. You don't have to face the decay of Western society by trying to shop at Walmart and dealing with all the frustration and Bidenomics like I so often have to do. Don't treat yourself like a chump. Take care of yourself. You just got great mental health, having a good night's sleep on the ghost bed. Treat yourself right. Have a wonderful meal. Our friends at Factor Meals take care of us. Go ahead and uh, check them out today. We appreciate it. Use the offer code WOLFPACK50. And thanks to Factor for always supporting us. Kendra. This case uh, is an interesting one. I, I actually didn't know about it. It happened in 2020, but then so much did that we didn't, you know, I don't think this ever really made its way in the news uh, because it was, you know, just 2020 was actually kind of a big year for news. I don't know if you recall that, but there was a lot going on <laughs> um, in terms of uh, an election and a worldwide disease 
and uh, like the Olympics being delayed mm-hmm. and things like that. Uh, what happened though? This was a case down there in Florida, relatively close to you, because I'm so far yep. away from Florida. I assume that it's all one small place, and every you know every place in Florida touches all the other places, so it must be very near you. Well, it's really close to Disney, and I think when people think of Florida, they think of a beaches. And then Disney. So it all just kind of lumps together. But uh, this this did happen pretty close to me. And it is very strange that it didn't make the news. Because there was a little bit of an FBI investigation involved. There's some other background into the family annihilator in this case that kind of ties in to this. And it, it's actually, it's just a very uh, interesting Mostly disturbing, but yeah, very interesting case. So I'm not really sure. I'm assuming, yeah, COVID and all the other stuff covered it up. Yeah. So we're but. so we're talking about Celebration, Florida, which is a, a city or a community originally owned or planned by Disney. At some point, they sold their stake in it, but it's this beautiful uh, Florida resort town. You can imagine picturesque white houses, palm trees in every block, delightful little shops, almost like an extension of the park itself. And Anthony Tote lives there at least some of the time. Uh, with his wife and three children. Anthony is a physical therapist, and he maintains a practice up in Connecticut, of all things. So somehow he has a lifestyle where he has a second or vacation home in Florida. I guess it was his primary home, because I think I think when he was up in Connecticut working, he literally slept in his office and showered at the gym. So he's living a pretty austere yeah. life up there. But he's also flying back and forth from Connecticut to Florida. And this is not like a regular commute like in the Northeast where like you – you know, you work in uh, Philadelphia and like maybe you uh, you live in New Jersey or something like where you're on a train or something or between Baltimore and Washington, D.C. or something. It's not like that at all. Like you're getting on a plane, you're flying across the country. Um, yeah. So he, he's away from the family quite often uh, performing physical therapy. He's got a reputation as being a great guy. Uh, there's uh, some kind of community up there that just recognizes kindness and he won like Hero of the Day Award and he uh, was well known for being loved by his patients, would go out of his way for him. Uh, he uh, also did work with, uh, he was like a youth soccer coach. Um, he worked with uh, disabled people. And so he has this uh, image that he's kind of like this really great father. Uh, he's uh, he's everything that you, you would come to expect in a true crime podcast, right? He's, he's the suspect yes. that you would never yep. expect. <laughs> And of course, uh, every time you, you you listen to the shows, and this I'm not picking on them yet, although I will, uh, you know the the mom and the three kids, you know they they live a kind of a perfect life. Uh, the mother, of course, uh, she was age 42. Her name's Megan. Uh, the eldest son, his name's Alec. Middle son is Tyler, and of course they have a four-year-old daughter named Zoe. Another victim in this case, and I'm not being glib, is the, the family dog Breezy. The reason I mention this. As we alluded to earlier, this is a family annihilation. It, it was so extreme that uh, Anthony did kill the dog. And the reason why I mention that is because it was actually, you know, normally when a prosecutor is prosecuting a murder, uh, they drop other things. Case in point, uh, some of the things that were going on with Anthony that were leading to this federal investigation, these things all got dropped. The reason for that is what he's facing uh, in terms of these murders is life in prison. So why are you going to waste time 
putting on these smaller or lesser charges, like these white-collar crimes he's accused of. There's no reason to prosecute these things. If, if you can get him on the murders, like, you're going to put him away forever. And if, you're, if, if he's going away for murder, then there's no hope of any kind of restitution for those financial crimes because he's going to be in prison making $1.25 stamping license plates the rest of his life. Like, there's no financial <laughs> viability in, in any kind of restitution or, or prosecuting the civil cases. So the reason I mentioned that is because he annihilated the family, and the prosecutors actually put on there, you know, four counts of murder and then a count of animal cruelty with the dog. Mm-hmm. And it was just interesting because so many people reacted to the dog uh, very differently. Um, you know, these children don't deserve to die. His wife doesn't deserve to die. Uh, but Breezy, also the dog, like for some reason, it's almost counterintuitive. People think that the dog was just a bridge too far, which obviously any one of them was. But uh, why, yeah. why don't you take yeah. us uh, back to the middle of the case? Do you want to start maybe like the calls for welfare checks? I thought, I thought that was an interesting uh, point in the case, uh, just because it's right after Thanksgiving is, is when all this kind of started up in, uh, in 2020. And it's right after Thanksgiving yeah. right now. And I'm actually taking a lot of calls for welfare checks. So did you want to talk about that part of it to start? Ooh. Yeah, um, I'll do a little bit of a build up first so people understand it's the timeline here because it's kind of confusing. It is confusing, but I don't want to I don't I don't want to establish a mood or anything. I just I just want to like, okay, just fire facts at people. That's what they're here for. No, you go ahead. <laughs> well, we can start at the welfare checks. Essentially, what happened was um, no, no, they no, were no, down. Build up. I was being sarcastic. You go for it. <laughs> You know, I can't tell with you sometimes. Usually I'm pretty good at picking up on it, but well, I can't tell sometimes. The reason why our, our marriage ended is because I, I came to you and I told you several things in jest and you took them very seriously. Yeah. And then when I tried You're a very good it, liar, when too. I, when I tried to buy it back later, saying, oh, no, I was joking. You know, at that point, the ink was dry. On the universe, so. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Uh, that's what happened. I mean, if you, if you ever wonder why, is- why we're no longer married together, I mean, that's why. It's the truth. (laughs) Your sarcasm and lies ruined it. Uh, But Tony, this is kind of, you you mentioned it earlier, where he was kind of a pillar of his community in Connecticut. And so was Megan. The whole family was really. Um, Tony and Megan were high school sweethearts. They were from the area. They both attended Sacred Heart University and became licensed physical therapists. Tony opened his practice I don't think Megan worked with him. I believe she was uh, specializing in pediatrics or something like that. But they decided to start a family. Um, And one of the things about this case um, that stands out, and we'll talk about it later, is Megan was very sick. They believed it was Lyme disease. But she also had a a heart issue that she was diagnosed with when she was young. She had other things going on, too. I'm not sure if this is true because this is coming from the suspect himself. But she had some Mm. sort of drug-induced hepatitis, which shut down the functioning of her liver, which hepatitis can be a very devastating disease. If you've never seen the people who are suffering from that, they often collect fluid in their abdomen, their eyes turn yellow. Basically, their liver is is shut down, so it's not processing any of the toxins out of their body. Like, if you think about the gross stuff that leaves your body when you urinate, like, all that stuff's just staying inside of her, and I guess it was really toxic for her. I'm not sure if any of that's true, though, because it's coming from the suspect, but go ahead. Right. But she did, she definitely had these like Lyme, um, I think they were called exacerbation, exacerbations or something like that, but right. she would have flare ups. She had a really bad one and she remained ill for the rest of her life. Um, 
to resolve or help some of the symptoms, they decided to purchase a home in celebration so she could be in the warmer weather, um, get a little bit of the sunlight, the benefits and everything from that. Um, Tony mentioned that they were at one point traveling physical therapists, and that's how they initially discovered celebration. So this might seem like a weird detail, but it comes into play. He said when he was testifying that when they were down in Florida on their contract, one of their contracts, they intentionally bought a home in celebration because the company was paying their mortgage. So they thought, okay, well, we'll just kind of get a jump on things while we're here. And eventually, Megan and the kids just moved into that home. So at this point, Tony is still practicing in Connecticut and then, like you said, flying home to spend time with his family. I want to say it was every weekend, which is a lot. He was flying all the time. Everything was pretty hunky-dory until April of 2019 when Tony started kind of slipping on the finances. He had two homes in celebration. Well, he was renting a home in celebration as well as owning a home. And celebration, like you said earlier, it's like a, it was meant to be an experimental community. So it's, and it's Disney, Disney-fied. So it's very expensive. <laughs> I, I heard something about that their, their expected payment per month was something around $5,000. Yes. If you're a single income family, you've got three kids and dad's flying, he's commuting back and forth. And I don't know what physical therapists make. I hope they make lots of money, but as we would come to find out, he's living beyond his means, to put it frankly. Uh, yeah, very, very uh, beyond his means um, to the point where he's taking out loans. I think it was something ar- around the number of 60 loans from different in- from different companies. And then he also started um, fr- defrauding insurance and he yeah. was billing insurance companies for appointments and treatments that he didn't even do insurance. on patients that... Insurance, but what where he really tripped up was Medicaid. Uh, the Office of yes. Health and Human Services has an Inspector General's office, or they have some other. They have special agents in that executive branch of the government. So you have an executive, or excuse me, you have a, a special agent from the Department of Health and Human Services. But she's office. She's from the Office of Inspector General, just like how like the Post Office has a Postmaster General, and they, they have a Postmaster Postmaster Inspector and things like this. So, in, executive agencies will have. Uh, some kind of law enforcement branch that investigates fraud. And, and that's kind of how he gets in deep is that uh, they, they eventually would confront him on that. And, uh, you know, he would admit to things pretty much right away, but keep going. Yeah. They, the FBI and the um, in- inspectors from the uh, department of human health and services, health and human department services. of human. Yep. HHS. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> health and human services. They go to his practice in Connecticut in November of 2019 and they confront him about it essentially where he does admit to it um he plays it cool which is really irritating because this guy is absolutely a lunatic um but he's basically caught so he just kind of pony he owns up to it and they're gathering all their evidence and stuff like that he comes back to florida and he, he, he I have him, no idea. He tells him he's going to, he's going to, that first of all, that his wife doesn't know anything about it, uh, mm, that he's going to yeah. put some things in order. But then, of course, he, he never comes back. So I don't know how it works if you, if you basically confess to 
a massive amount of fraud, which has got to be a felony. And, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's no supervised release for you. You know, I guess it might have been a, a condition of his bond that he not leave the state. But, I mean, it doesn't really matter because he, he did do it. And I don't know if he told them he was going to or not. But they knew where he was going right. to be, though. He went down to Florida. Keep going. Yeah, I was just going to say, I don't know if he told if Megan knew anything about it. But you clarified that. So thank you, because <laughs> I'm assuming I would assume he wouldn't tell her about it. Mm-hmm. Just because of the kind of person that he was is and, and the kind of person that she was in fairness, you know, she's she's sick a lot, according to him. This is all all from him. So we need to look at it through a lens of some skepticism. She'd been in pain for a long time. She'd been suffering. She had some miscarriages, which are devastating to a woman. She's dealing with depression. Um, some other issues. I'm not even sure how Lyme disease can affect you, but I know that Lyme disease is actually one of those really terrible things. It has all, like all kinds of side effects, like you can't eat meat anymore and, and things like that. Um, I mean, I've heard that. I'm not a doctor. So look that up for yourself. I just sort of made that up off the cuff. But Lyme disease can be very, very bad for you. Um, it's affecting her in a lot of ways. He starts crafting this story about her, which deeply impacts his story of what happened. But if true, uh, Megan started looking towards Eastern religions, uh, ideas uh, aware of reincarnation, uh, where you die, and if you've died, if you died while living a good life, that you'll reincarnate to a higher level of life, a more just life, an easier life, uh, one without pain, one without the negative relationships that she was suffering from. I guess there were people in her life that were uh, unkind to her or even abusive. Um, and she started having, if it wasn't suicidal ideation, it was sort of a generalized death wish, you know, uh, ideation about the afterlife and things like that. And, and, and again, this is all through the lens of the suspect. But as he was traveling back and forth to Connecticut, she was struggling to, to do things. Like she couldn't get out of bed. Uh, the eldest son was making meals that he would sometimes land in Connecticut, having just come back from Florida. And would be told, you know, that things are going bad down here. You need to come back immediately. And he, while still at the airport, he would just book a flight back down to Florida. That's if anything that he says about Megan is true. Other people do not say that yeah. about Megan. Go on. Yeah, that's a point that he uses um, a lot throughout this case to defend himself. That she, and in his testimony, he was very condescending about it, which pisses me off because she's not here to defend herself or give her side of the story. And he, Towards the end, he isolated them, and it just, it really boils my blood that he spoke about his wife like that. Um, It shows that he wasn't taking any accountability for anything, but he essentially was saying that she turned away from their medical training, and she got involved in these religious groups, and he mentioned that she read a book by a guy who talked to a ghost is what he said, or listened to a ghost. And he's trying to discredit her in her state of mind for sure. Yes. And for which she got her yoga certification, uh, years before this happened. And she was a yoga instructor for a while. And obviously yoga is not just because you do yoga does not mean that you're fully in like involved in that culture, but no, it's just stretching for rich people. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I agreed with you before I it hit me. <laughs> um, I myself do yoga, so I can say that I am not fully, uh, I don't, I'm not doing all the things that he's trying to say that she's doing. And I've done yoga it's before just, too. And, and what I love about it is it combines six separate things that I hate into one event. 
like being in front of strangers, <laughs> having a stranger touch me, taking my shoes off, striking sexy poses, failing to strike sexy poses, <laughs> being in a room of women who at least conceivably, you know, I could date, but this is how they're seeing me. And then also being in a room with men with jaw lines so sharp that it shames me, even though I have a beard. It's the most painfully embarrassing experience that I could ever have. And people pay good money for that, like you. I presume you go to classes. But keep going. No, I don't. I was just going to say you can do it at home by yourself. With the lights, I just put a YouTube video on and follow and the, it. With the lights off and the shoes on, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, I keep wanting to call him Todd. <laughs> Tony is using these things to discredit his wife, as you said. Um, who knows if any of it's true. But apparently this, I'm saying apparently because I'm picking up off of what Tony's demeanor was when he was talking about it. I think that this really caused uh, some sort of resentment in him towards her. Could and he was care caring for her, um, according to him. He was basically her caretaker because she would have these bouts of, you know, illness where she couldn't get out of bed or she would just be depressed and he would take care of her. And he's going back to Connecticut constantly to work and he's under investigation. And I just think all of these things kind of, it doesn't really, it still doesn't really establish a motive and it's definitely not an excuse, but I just think it's noteworthy. Why don't we so. uh, Why don't we talk about exactly what happened? Uh, do you want to talk about either the welfare checks or the surveillance, or what? Where would you like to start with that? So chronologically, um, in November, when he he got investigated, and then he comes down to Florida. Um, I actually have a, a little bit of a timeline, so let me. <laughs> Those are helpful. He comes down to Florida. This is uh, in uh, late no, late November of twenty twenty right around yep. Thanksgiving time. He starts having uh, family members are getting in touch with him. Hey, what are your plans for the holidays? You're going to be around. Are you mm -hmm. going to do this? And they're texting his wife, Megan, and they're talking to him. And at one point they're like, well, you know what we're going to do? We're, we're not going to do any family stuff this year. We're, we're going to take the boys and our, and our daughter. We're going to go over to St. Augustine. We're going to see their architecture, give them a hands-on history lesson where they learn all about the oldest city in, in, in Florida and in America and however old it is. Well, then, uh, you know, people are saying, well, you know, how's the trip going? Are you enjoying St. Augustine? And they're like, well, you know, actually, we've we've got the flu. All of every even, all of us have the flu, pretty bad flu. And so we're just we're going to put off the trip. And then uh, and then, you know, at some point it becomes confused. You know, who's using the phones? Who's sending text messages? Kendra, mm -hmm. if I'm wrong, like her phone turned up in Sarasota or something like her. Her phone wound up somewhere strange. So. It it was his phone, his phone that was there, which um I don't I don't really know if that detail is super. I just think that he left it there. But Sarasota is not that terribly far away. Like it, it's not like inconceivable that he would go there for a weekend or something like that. But between the time that he came to Florida and then the time that all the welfare checks happened, he was doing he was making these stories like we're going to go off grid or like you said, we were going to St. Augustine or we have the flu. Megan can't come to the phone. Oh, the kids can't come to the phone either. And it, this concerned their family, including his own sisters mm -hmm. on, on December 1st of that year, the landlord to the rental property posted an eviction. So obviously he's not paying 
his rent because um, he can't afford it. <laughs> um, December 14th rolls around, and this is the last time that anyone sees the whole family alive. Um, it was a Christmas recital because the two older boys were um, musically inclined, and they're that was the last time that anybody saw everyone alive together. If you're 11 years old and you can play the guitar, you definitely don't deserve to die. I'm going to take that stance right now. That's just amazing. <laughs> I think I think I think Alec, 13 years old, could play the violin. I mean, these are some gifted yes. kids, and they're they're good at math, and they don't they don't cry after every algebra lesson. I mean, they're amazing kids. Really extraordinary. Yeah, and it, I think that goes to uh, Megan's care and love and the kind of person that she was because she was raising them and homeschooling them yeah. and she put a lot of effort into it not saying he didn't but you know he was working and children are a reflection most of the time of their parents so in this case i think it's reflective of, of megan and the kind of person and mother that she was mm -hmm. so from the 14th to the 29th of december which is when the first welfare check is called called in to the sheriff's office um no one hears or sees from the family at all. So I believe call, the first they call go Osceola, ahead. Osceola County dispatch and they ask for deputies to go out to the house. Deputies can't see anything wrong at the house. Yes. It's dark inside. All the shades are drawn. They walk around and they look for any signs of a crime that would give them any kind of reasonable suspicion to investigate further. Don't find anything wrong in the house. They know that he's off in Connecticut all the time. They know that their family might be gone for Thanksgiving. This is a big community. People are coming and going all the time. It's almost it's almost like a resort town, you know, with this being a, lots of people having second and third homes around here. There's nothing that gives them any kind of suspicion to think that the house is occupied or that anything untoward has happened. Go ahead. Yes, and the family has, I think, three vehicles, um, one of which probably stayed in Connecticut, and then two in florida and maybe. apparently one of them was maybe yeah and apparently the vehicles were gone or the, and or nobody had seen them if they're in the garage you can't tell if they're there or not yes and um the deputies would go out two more times in january so now we're from the 14th to the 11th of january and no one has heard from or seen the totes any of them and like in that period of in that time period, that's when his phone showed up at a Starbucks in Sarasota. Yeah. And that was, I mean, that was the only line of communication was whoever had this phone texted somebody in the family and was like, hey, I have this phone. And and that's really it. So the welfare checks each time produce the same results because, yeah. like you said, if, if you don't have any sort of clue or exigent circumstance to enter a home on a well-being check... You can't just go in. You have no. to look and knock on the door and nobody would come to the door. Yeah. That's why that scene in Home Alone is actually super realistic. Do you remember when the mom calls from Paris and she sends a Chicago police officer over to their house to check on Kevin? Kevin's scared of yeah. the burglar, so he hides <laughs> under the bed. Nobody answered. Officer says, house looks secure. There's no one home. 10-8. That's it. Uh, and when I was a kid, I, I when I used to watch that movie before I was in law enforcement, I'm just like, that's ridiculous. The, they think there's a kid in there. They're definitely going to go inside and make sure the kid's there. No, they cannot do that. <laughs> If there's no sign that anything's wrong, that's all they could do is just check the exterior of the house because uh, a man's home is his castle and it's the ultimate Fourth Amendment case. So 
you know, it, that might've been a little different because you have a parent checking on a child and it's the person who owns the home. Like that could be a little different, but I mean, that's essentially what's happening in this case. What's also interesting about this is that we're now a full in the era of true crime. Like we talk about so many cases from the seventies, eighties, nineties, all those really fun times when true crime was, was awesome and sort of inscrutable. But now when the totes are disappearing, Family knows about this. They're asking for law enforcement to get involved. Law enforcement doesn't really have anything to go on to say anything's wrong. Uh, so there's a Facebook group looking for the totes, and people in both Florida and Connecticut are getting involved and, and talking back and forth. And this was initi initiated by some of the family. Uh, but that doesn't really gain any traction or go anywhere other than to say, like, people are very aware that the totes are missing, and they're trying to make a case. Uh, unfortunately, things wouldn't change in, in terms of ascertaining the status or location of the totes until that federal judge issues uh, an, an arrest warrant. Basically, they knew that Anthony had confessed to uh, the misappropriation of funds from Medicare and uh, the double billing of insurance and things like that. And, uh, you know, he was supposed to get a lawyer and put all his affairs in order, but he hasn't come back. So it's time to go hook him. So they mm -hmm. send out, uh, I believe it was another HHS agent, one or two of them, and they're they're just going to stake out the house. And one day, an HHS agent is out there staking out the house. This is in January, and he sees Anthony come outside. Yep, he sees him sit on the porch. Um, he believes the investigator believes that him and Tony lock eyes, and Tony kind of makes him because he's doing surveillance on the house. So. He phones his partner and they get a couple of deputies from the Osceola Sheriff's Office and they go to the house. They knock on the door. There's no answer. What's the reason? Uh, why they, they get what's the reason why they get the deputies, though? It's not just because they're not certified fake HHS law enforcement officers. It's because that's standard procedure, right? Like feds asking mm -hmm. for assistance yes. in a local jurisdiction is normal. They want the marked vehicle. They want backup. But primarily they know that there's kids involved, right? So even if they go in there and hook up Anthony and the kids are inside and they're playing, uh, that's going to be a Department of Social Services issue possibly, depending on whether or not their mother's there or whether or not their you know, their mother, mother is going to get arrested too if she puts up some kind of resistance. But it's always helped to have help from the locals. So uh, deputies from Osceola County go out there to back them up and they knock on the door. Yeah, that, um, just to speak to what you said about the deputies going, um, we obviously, like you said, the standard procedure. And there were plenty of times where I would go on warrants with FBI or some other um, government alphabet agency to serve warrants. And one of the one of the reasons was if they if they made any arrests, what are they going to do with them? Pretty much. Yeah, to, <laughs> that was go, a big reason. They need to go to the county jail, which means the sheriff and the whole sheriff's department needs to know about it because now someone's coming into yeah. custody into the jail on a federal county or if, excuse me, on a federal warrant as a dispatcher, uh, it's different by jurisdiction, but that's actually something I would really need to know because I'm the one that do, does a lot of paperwork on that. Um, the jail administrator mm -hmm. needs to know who's coming and why. But what's important about it is when he, they knock on the door and he doesn't answer, now it's different than the welfare check. Number one, they for sure know that he's there and that arrest warrant gives them significant powers. Kendra. Yeah, so there's a couple of steps when it comes to things like that. Obviously, the welfare check is way, way, way below a, a warrant. Um, if you're observing the person that you have the warrant for and you see them go into, you can identify them and you see them go into a home and you have a warrant, you have the right to enter the home to arrest the person. Serve the warrant. Same thing with a search warrant. Yes, yeah, serve the warrant. 
So, of course, they don't want to do like they try. We as law enforcement try to keep everything as peaceful and non-confrontational as we can initially. So you're going to knock on the door and that obviously did not work. So they contact the landlord. Um, I think a neighbor said that they had a key, but they didn't take that key uh, probably because they just wanted to make sure they got it from the right place. So they, they obtain this key and they go inside. And when they enter the home, they, they make a note that they smell death. It's very pungent is the word that they used. Smell, right. I don't know yes. if these HHS agents are used to that. They might be, depending on what their background is, but certainly the Osceola County deputies are, because that's that's a part of, of life as a sheriff's deputy. Yeah, you're you're smelling death quite a bit, and it's a very distinct smell. Um, pungent is a very good word for it. So they go inside, and they see Tony at the top of the stairs, and they're talking to him like, hey, come on down. What are you doing? <laughs> He's just kind of in a trance kind of almost and he's slowly descending down the stairs I, I don't know if this was an act or what but they ask him where's megan where are the kids naturally tony says megan's asleep upstairs and the all three of the kids are at a sleepover at a friend's house or yeah, that he wasn't sure if they were or not again he's in kind of a daze right. or kind of a stupor and uh, when they had seen him outside initially, they had seen him kind of lumbering around or they, they were there was some concerns about the way that he was walking, that something was unusual. Mm-hmm. So aside from seeing him and just ha- having the arrest warrant there to get him, they're already worried about something else before they go in there. But they're talking right. to him for about a minute on the staircase and he comes down. And obviously, uh, at one point, he's coming down the stairs and he even calls out to Megan. Oh, I didn't know that. That's he called, out, he called out to her. And uh, so the deputies, uh, they obviously take him uh, into custody and they begin to search the house. Uh, I'm sure they're doing this very methodically, carefully slicing the pie the way they were thought because you have just no idea what you're going to find. You have strong suspicion that uh, some kind of unattended death has occurred, whether it's a homicide or, or other suspicious death that needs to be treated as such until it's you know ruled an accident or whatever's going on here. Obviously, that's something very wrong. They search the entire house and they get to the the master bedroom where they can see in silhouette uh, some part of the body or the feet of Megan laying in bed. Yes, they go to the top of stairs. Like you said, they enter, they they look into the master bedroom and they see um, a foot sticking out of a blanket that they said was basically black and blue, which is a decomp. I'm assuming that would be decomp and not some sort of like bruising. They go in. And they find what looks like kind of, I would say, a a shrine or an altar of some sort. Um, The two boys, Alec and Tyler, were found wrapped in blankets, deceased and heavily decomposed on the floor at the foot of the bed. They were on mattresses and they looked like they were in their bedclothes. Each of them was clutching Mm -hmm. a rosary and there was sage burning Mm -hmm. and uh, air purifiers going and candles. I think that was what the... The little monument to memorial was about yes um megan was found in the bed also deceased also heavily decomposed and the dog breezy was found in the dogs in her bed dead um little zoe was so badly decomposed that they missed her 
initially. I couldn't find and, her in the first search, right? Right. And she's so small, um, I think she just decomposed faster, and that's why they missed her initially, but they did eventually uh, locate her in the bed with Megan. Yeah. She was she was kind of swaddled in the blankets, and they would later say uh, or, or, or theorize that because her heat was held in, uh, that it, it accelerated her decomposition in addition to just being uh, four years old and a child. At one point, mm -hmm. they attempted to do blood work because that would become to be important in uh, discovering the manner of death. Unfortunately, Zoe was so badly decomposed that they could not discriminate anything that was blood. Um, I don't mean this like in a disrespectful yeah. way or like we're talking about a four-year-old child here, but it's like she had essentially become like a mass of, of uh, fluid and tissue. She was like a soup. You know, everything's all sort of mixed together at that point. Um, they're aware that, of course, that that's, that's Zoe. That's the, the four-year-old. And uh, this has to be just be like the worst possible thing that these deputies and these HHS agents could ever find. And uh, so, you know, they've they've got the, the three children there, the dog and Megan, all dead inside the house. And uh, this is where the first of Anthony's many stories would begin. Yeah, Anthony, he gives a couple of stories throughout this case. Uh, the first initial interview he admits to it. He takes responsibility for the murders. He, did, um, he does this while he's being Baker Act, right? Like he's, he, mm -hmm. he, says, he says that I tried to take a bunch of Benadryl to overdose myself, to yes. kill myself. They don't know if they did this before he came out on the porch, if he did it after he was made. Uh, but I guess some attempt was made to overdose on, on Benadryl, and that could have been affecting his, his, uh, his consciousness, uh, his clarity, his equilibrium, and things like that. So, But just finding the situation that he was in, he, that he's clearly been in a house with four corpses uh, and the dog, and he's there. And based on just the timeline of what we know for how long we've been looking for him in communication with the family— and the unopened presence, and it's January 13th, he's been in that house with them for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And the state that he's in, so he's going get, to get Baker acted. Uh, that's something that uh, I think is fairly unique to Florida because we don't call it that here. I don't know if you want to describe what a Baker Act is, Kendra. Yeah, a Baker Act, it's, it's a name for um, involuntary protective custody. Uh, most states have something like that. It's just not called a Baker Act. Um, and Basically, what it is, is if you determine that someone is in imminent threat of harm to themselves or others, you can take them into custody. It's not an arrest. You're not charged with anything. It's a protective custody to keep you from hurting yourself or somebody else. And in Florida, we have facilities that we take them to if they're full or they don't, or if like you show up and someone's injured, but you're Baker Acting them, you can take them to a hospital and the hospital will keep them under a Baker Act. While they're being held, they have to see a, a doctor or a psychologist or some sort of mental health professional before they can be released. And you can be held up to 72 hours. Um, or could be longer, it, you, but you have to go to court essentially after 72 hours and present your case as to why this person should remain in custody past the 72 hours. Yeah, you're, you're um, violating the rights to freedom without criminal charges at that point. So you've got to make a case right. to a judge that this person, you know, if released, will definitely cause harm to themselves or others. So there's there's a, a hoop that you have to leap through on that. But I don't think, I don't I don't know how long he was in custody. I don't know if it was the full 72 or even 72 or whatever. I'm not sure how long he was. Probably not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Probably not. A lot of the time, like the 72-hour thing, 
is it's pretty rare for most Baker acts because it's usually in a crisis. And then once the crisis is over, they, you know, people kind of come down a little bit. So I doubt he was, and they they probably wanted to get him to the jail because that's a, that's a logistical nightmare when you have someone who has charges, but they're in a hospital or in another facility because law enforcement has to be with them. You have to sit with them, right? Uh, There's plenty of occasions where we've taken people in for involuntary committals and they just leave, you know, these uh, places that watch over them, although they're designed to keep them safe, they're not, they're not, in terms of their security, they're not often robust or they're not often perfect or these people have to find a way of, of slipping out. And at that point, you know, particularly if they have charges, he's already wanted, at least on this federal thing, if not for certainly mm-hmm. under, under reasonable suspicion or probable cause for the death of his family, you know, he, he, you have to post somebody there to make sure that he stays put. You can't have him just walking away and no longer being in custody at all. Right. And in one of the videos of him um, being, I believe he was being transported probably from a facility to the jail. Maybe it was from the sheriff's office to the jail. I'm not sure. You could see him in a white jumpsuit. And socks. Um, That's And socks. That is something that happens when someone's being investigated for a homicide because they take the clothes and they do all these different things. So they have jumpsuits. No belts, no Mm -hmm. shoelaces. They they have uh, security gowns and blankets so they can't tear anything. uh, They can't use anything to make nooses out of it. They're usually, I'm sure he was put on, even after he was uh, done with the, the Baker Act or the involuntary hold, I'm sure he was on a suicide watch. Uh, by his own statements, you know, when he was mm-hmm. uh, when he was in custody, he said he wanted to be dead with his family. Uh, this is the story that was the first thing that he said happened. Circling back to uh, the family and the welfare checks, and first, you know, they just said, "Hey, we haven't been in touch with them." As they keep calling back, they say, "We haven't been in touch with them," and there's been developments. We know there's an active investigation by the federal government that they're looking into them for these white collar crimes. And also the last time that we heard from Megan, she used the phrase, the world is ending, which is definitely suspicious and worrisome to a family member. From a law enforcement point of view, it doesn't mean much. We've talked about that on the show before, how sometimes people can make statements and someone who knows them well knows the implication and tone and meaning of things and that things are more grave. It's very hard to translate that in a legally durable way to a police officer because the world is ending is just, you know, how you feel when you're late to work some days, you know. Um, the world ending can also be how you feel when you're about to die. Uh, so it's very hard, but within the context of everything, it's very worrisome. I don't bring it up because it really matters in terms of law enforcement response, but it matters in terms of what Tony has to say about it. He says that it was very important to he and Megan that before the apocalypse, which was scheduled to occur on December 28th, that he and his wife and the children and the dog all left this earth together as a family so that they would be together and so that they would be reunited on the other side. So there's some kind of delusional or paranoid thinking about the end of the world going on. This uh, suggests that Tony was not in his right mind uh, combined with the Benadryl and, and basically living in a house full of dead family members for weeks you have to wonder, did he feel this way before? Is he only feeling this way now? We have no way of deciphering that or figuring it out. But basically what he was saying is, is that this was this was a planned thing between he and his wife, that it was going to be to protect the children from the end of the world and, and protect her that he was going to kill them. Uh, this gets really complicated really quick because uh, the story changes as, as he begins to say that 
it was all Megan's idea. Uh, Megan's the one who said it was the end of the world on the phone. So what does she mean by it's the end of the world? Does she mean that she believes that because of her her strange beliefs in, in, in some kind of hybrid Eastern religion or just uh, in her sickness or her depression or her possibly manic states that's going on, that she's having some sort of separation from reality? Or does it mean that Tony, who is on the verge of losing all of his acclaim as hero of the day and well-known soccer coach and family man and practitioner of family of physical therapy with his uh, job in Connecticut and his home in celebration in Florida and the shame that it's about to bring to his entire family and the end of his lifestyle as he knows it. Is that what it means by the end of the world? Could it be that they had a conversation? He came home and said, hey, just so you know, there's a warrant out for my arrest that I've already told them that I did these things. I kept this from you. Uh, and she said, you know, I'm, I'm going to leave you, you know, and in face with the ultimate shame, the dissolution of his work and his family, you know, did he decide, well, if, if I can't have these things, the rest of the world can't, or was his intention to my life really is over. And so my children, my wife are an extension of me that their lives are over too, or I'm going to protect them from having to go on without me. I'm going to kill them. There's so many iterations, which you could get into to justify at least in Anthony's mind, why he would do this. Kendra, do you have any thoughts on, on what Anthony was, was thinking, at least in accordance with what he first told detectives about what happened? Yeah, he fits the, cate- the, not the categorization, but he fits the bill for a family annihilator. Because when you look at the characteristics of a family annihilator, a lot of times it's somebody who's very unassuming or even just like, a great family man. Now, a family annihilator could be a woman, but I think there's only like a few. It's mostly men. And some of the factors that go into that decision are financial burden, divorce, um, loss of job, things like that, loss of job. That's all. So he's got the big three. And he's, yep. And he also, he's had a facade that he's put on. And I say facade because. He has some troubling, he has some issues from something that happened that was very troubling as a child. Um, and we'll get into that. But I just want to note him, his initial statements of the world is ending and I wanted to be with my family and all that. He essentially twisted around and projects the same exact narrative, but onto Megan. And I, he maintains that through trial. The, the worst part about it is that he says that, you know, he came from home from work, found them dead, found her, you know, in, in some sort of parasuicidal state. He's mad at her. He's he's bereft at the sight of his dead children and that he's saying to her, you know, I'll take the blame for this or that, you know, he would he would somehow protect her from the ignominy of her murdering her own children. So think about what he's doing. He's telling investigators now that the only, the only reason I confessed to this earlier is because I was trying to protect my wife who at one point he says, Megan killed her children, you know, which is a total disassociation of himself from the children saying Megan did this to her kids, not Megan did this to my kids or Megan did this to mm-hmm. our children. At some point he's firmly putting the blame on her and saying the only reason he ever assumed any blame at all was because he was trying to be the good guy. I think that's the key to Anthony is that he is forever trying to preserve his image, whether that's he's a successful and affluent uh, physical therapist. He's this consummate family man with his brilliant children and this wonderful wife. I think he's, I think he's constantly trying to protect that image. And when he was confronted with the warrant and when he was confronted with the fact that all, all the sky was coming down around him, 
I don't know what that conversation was like with Megan. I don't know if he saw the dissolution of his entire family, but when he lost that facade that he presented to the world, I think he felt like what he had for his real life was so shameful or it was so inadequate that there was nothing left and that wasting that was, was the same thing as wasting nothing. I agree. I think because I, I tried to search for like a motive and try to figure out what could possibly have, what possibly could have led to this and which most people do because it's very confusing. Um, and that's the only conclusion that I could come. That's the only plausible reason mm-hmm. is his entire world, his entire identity that he's been building his whole life. Cause my, remember him and Megan are high school sweethearts. Mm-hmm. They have like the perfect life, right? They're both successful. Right. They have a great family, make all this money. And I don't think Tony ever believed that he was really that guy. Maybe. But he did everything that he possibly could to now I'm speculating wildly here, but I once love, that all came wild, crashing down. I love wild speculation round. I will say this though, this is kind of what firms up in my mind because the first thing I thought when I heard this case was and I was listening to a, a podcast that really hated on this guy. I thought to myself, you know, I don't condone anything that he's done. You can empathize with someone and understand their feelings without condoning. I say, you know, I, I understand the male psychology. I understand how powerful it is to lose a job, to lose your family, um, to be divorced, to, to have everything come crashing down. I understand those feelings. I understand what it's like to be in the midst of that. Um, and, to, and to lose face as a man, you know, I understand how powerful that could be. What shame can do to men is, is extraordinary. And I was actually kind of balking at first because this one podcaster was was really was really tearing him down. But then the more that I learned, the more that I realized that those feelings are misplaced. Because after, when he's uh, in prison, he writes to a family member that uh, a chaplain's been working with them to restore, uh, so that he he resembles the proud man that he once was. So he still he cares about his pride. He's talking about himself. He's talking about how he's doing. And he also wants to establish some kind of foundation that's named after the named after his children. It's just it's just an acronym of their first names, and it's a foundation to accomplish something. Do you see how even after it's all over, and actually he changes the story, so it's not him taking the blame. It's Megan who is, who has done it all. That he's you know he he has restored his own sense of self worth, his own pride, and now he's going to take what happened to him, which was the worst thing worst thing that ever happened to him which he survived. So what happened to the Megan and the children was far worse than what happened to him. Uh, he's going to take this and try to turn it into something good or meaningful. And of course, he's somehow associated with that goodness or meaning and would be s- sort of nominally the face of that. And so it's disgusting. You know, at the, at the end of it, he's still trying to save face or, or say that he went through some ordeal and, and has come through it uh, a stronger or better or, or as a survivor or even a victim of his own his own actions. Yeah, uh, his sister, his sister said that he ag- told her that he agreed to um, start do a book deal. Essentially, like very soon after he was um, arrested for this, which is if you're truly, if you truly did come home and found your children dead and watched your wife stab herself. By the way, was was the story, stab herself in the liver, which. And bleed out in front of you. Um, my first question is, why would you not call 911? Mm-hmm. Or why wouldn't you call um, 911 as soon as you find the children? Yes. And the second thing is, why, if that is probably one of the worst things, probably the worst thing that any one human could possibly go through, is that experience that he is saying that he had. 
I don't think that the first thing on your mind would be, I want to tell my story. I want to make money off this. I want people to know. And that was something he kept saying through his testimony, which was, I listened to all of it. I don't, I don't know if you listened to all of it, but it was horrifying and really annoying. Um, Uh, I I listened to his testimony, which just to touch on that is amazing because first of all, why is he testifying generally at a trial? Any lawyer worth their salt will say, do not go on the stand because you have to, you have to withstand cross-examination, meaning the prosecution is going to ask you directed questions, which you're either going to answer and they already know the truth, or you're going to incriminate yourself with the truth or, you know, you're going to invoke your Fifth Amendment right and not say anything, which, so why are you on the stand? And the thing that was so troublesome about that is because he had already confessed to detectives this entire story about how he and Megan had thought about it for a long time, and they decided this is what was best for the family, that they wanted to protect themselves from the apocalypse, that they had discussed it with the children, saying to the children, how would you feel if Mommy and Daddy were dead? And the children are saying, well, we want to be dead with you. You know, how do you, how do you explain that to a, a 13-year-old, an 11-year-old, let alone a 4-year-old? I hope that conversation was never had with her. But... So they decide, well, you know, how are we going to do this? And I guess at one point, you know, they had they had uh, made some kind of dessert for the family where they're going to Jonestown themselves, and it doesn't have any effect because they don't know how to kill themselves. They're looking on websites. Mm-hmm. They're doing all these incriminating things after the fact that suggest this is very well preplanned. Um, and, and at one point, I guess uh, they said, you know, well, what, how do we deal with – they go to a pharmacist and ask, how do we deal with sleeplessness? Well, Benadryl will fix you right up. So I guess – and the timing of this is something that is crucial to me, and I'm not sure why I didn't hear anything about it, but who purchased the Benadryl and when? And the reason why I say that is because all the children, except for the the youngest daughter who was, you know, we couldn't really evaluate what kind of physical harm, if any, came to her, even if it was suffocation or whatever. She's She's beyond detailed analysis of what her cause of death was. All of them had suffered from Benadryl poisoning, so they had highly toxic levels of Benadryl in them. So... That's a way in which you would kill someone in which they would appear to fall asleep. They might have breathing difficulties and, and pass away. Here's the interesting thing. They also had stab wounds. Like you said, Megan had a stab wound to her liver. Uh, I think Alec also had a stab wound that was not fatal. It went into his abdominal cavity. Uh, it went uh, against part of a, part of his internal organs but didn't pierce anything, and it brushed up against a rib. And there was no there was no internal hemorrhaging. The reason why this is important is because if, you're, if your heart is bumping, and you have a pressurized circulatory system, if any kind of damage is happening to that, uh, you leak or you bleed. Everyone here has bled before. You know that it, it comes out of you because your, your circulatory system is pressurized. So they're, they're not able to find any, any evidence. A medical examiner doesn't find any evidence that any of this was pre-mortem. The idea was is that they took this Benadryl and it just wasn't working, and so we just need to end this. So the dad took a knife, stabbed it four inches into each of his children, at some point, there was some talk about how the 13-year-old was the fastest and the strongest, and they were worried, he was worried he might get away, which is like, at that point, you're not, you're not doing an agreed-upon family suicide pact. You're straight-up murdering your kids. Someone who wants to live, you're attacking them, right? That's just domestic violence. It's not something more mysterious or complicated than that. So the idea is, is that he claims that you know they, they took the, the overdose of the, of the Benadryl, that they, that they were also going to hemorrhage out with the knife wounds, However, the, the medical examiner couldn't find that. So what it was suggested was is that the kids died from the Benadryl poisoning and that as he stayed in the house with them for weeks and weeks and weeks, possibly unable to man up to go to the shame of my family's dead or whatever, or not man enough either to fulfill on his side of it, you know, he 
to kill himself. You know, we're all going to die, but, you know, he gets to the end. I'm like, yeah, maybe I'm worth living, though, you know, uh, decides not to go through with it. <laughs> so the idea was is that uh, as and not to get gross you out too much, but, you know, mom and the kids bloating, filling with gases and possibly these incisions were made to assist with the release of gases from the body. Kendra, any thoughts on that? That's a good theory. Um, it, the autopsies showed, like you said, stab wounds and then Benadryl, but there really is no way to, because they were decomposed. And I know, obviously, there are ways to know pre-postmortem um, wounds and things like that. I tend to agree that I think the, I know the toxicology said that the middle child, Tyler, he had like more Benadryl in his system than Alec. I don't know if that has anything to do with the timing of the deaths or what, but my theory is, is that he tested Tyler or Alec, excuse me, the oldest one and probably saw that that wasn't enough to really do the job. So he gave Tyler more. There was um, some talk that, um, like you said, Alec was fighting back and I, I agree. Yeah. If, if first of all, <laughs> a child can't consent to you murdering them, even if they say, yeah, I want to die. Um, that's can, not, they can hardly understand what you're talking about. I mean, at 13 years old, you're, you know, 11, you're at the, at the borderline of that, but what you're talking about is so, you know, it's, it's not a part of life. So talking to someone about how we should all just die. I mean, the kids are not going to go in for that with any kind of informed consent. No, and they, if that conversation did occur and the kids were like, yeah, we want to be with you, well, that's just the kids saying, well, I want to be with my mom and dad. That's not them saying, I want you to murder me. Right. I, that's that's ridiculous that he would even, it's disgusting. Uh, everything about this guy is gross. I, I, he just pisses me off. Um, I do, I, I didn't read too in depth into the autopsy report, so it could be. What, Go ahead. what I heard from the medical examiner was is that each of them died from homicidal violence of an unspecified nature, meaning I yes. know that the knife wounds themselves were not considered lethal either in the mom's mm -hmm. case or in the middle boy's case either. Um, and we don't know if the if if the daughter Zoe, if she was suffocated or, or what, uh, but they had been so badly decomposed at a certain point. Like I said, you're not able to differentiate things. You're not able to get all the answers like you would from someone who's freshly deceased. They've been in this house. Right. There's no power on. Like I said, no one had seen the lights on. They're in. They're in the. You know, I don't know how warm it, warm it is in January in, in Florida, but they're inside and they're decomposing and they're not able to to make out exactly what happened to them. Except they are are able to obviously take samples from Zoe. They're you know they they can't get blood, but they take samples from her brain and other organs to find this this Benadryl poisoning. Right, um, and that is something that that uh, Tony talks about throughout his second and third story where Megan did all of this and he just went along with it because he wasn't, he honored and obeyed her always is what he told his sister in a text message. And, um, he, he just uses everything as an excuse and nothing is his fault, which is typical of, of this kind of a case. Yeah. Um, one of the, one of the things that I think contributed to his, mental state to even do this in the first place was that uh, troubling incident that <laughs> I spoke about, I touched on earlier from his childhood. Break it down and then I'll talk um, about the court case. Go ahead. 
Okay, thank you. Um, Tony, when Tony was a child, his own father hired someone to murder his mother. So his his biological father put a hit on his biological mother. When this happened, the person that was doing the job took him and placed him in another room, shot his mother in the face, she survived, and then replaced him where he was at. And that is something that would traumatize anyone. I don't know how this, I don't think we'll ever know how much that played into his decision or if he even, I mean, I I don't know what, where his mind was with that, but I do think that it had something to do with it. I mean, you don't go through something like that and have it not affect you. She did put the kids through therapy and um, her husband served 10 years for it, but I don't think, (laughs) I don't think therapy is going to do much for that. I mean, it'll help, but that's, that's pretty horrifying. So that, I think that's a contributing factor in all this as well, or at least something to note. Uh, he, I, th- I think you're right that it did affect him strongly. Uh, the physical therapy aspect of it is what influenced him to become a physical therapist because he said that's what helped his mom. Um, so I think that was a huge part of it. But not to break down the whole nature versus nurture thing, but his, his biological father, who he's estranged from, not a real good guy. You have to wonder maybe what was passed on and, and that person being out of his life, you know, how much of that was nurture. But what was interesting in the case was so... He got Baker acted, right? They said that, uh, you know, he had to go to this involuntary committal. There's some kind of question about his state of mind at the time of his arrest. You know, was he uh, was he out of his mind? Was he, was he aware of what he was doing? The law says when you take someone's life, are you aware of the difference between right and wrong at the moment that you do that? So uh, there's diminished capacity cases. We see this battered woman syndrome, heat of the moment, uh, any kind of thing like that. Uh, so the defense tries to say, well, um, we want we want it going into evidence that he was he was he was Baker acted from the start, and so the prosecution wisely says, well, uh, so does that mean you're you're relying on an affirmative defense? And the reason why that's important is what did it, what is an affirmative defense? An affirmative defense says I'm guilty, but I, or I did this, but I'm not guilty by reason of mental disease, disease or defect. So he can't go in there and tell the jury, listen, I was Baker acted after this without assuming the affirmative defense of, I did this, but for this reason, I'm not guilty. So he can't go in there and have it both ways. He's trying to have it both ways by saying, I not only didn't do this, but I was also not not mentally well. So the the judge sides with him saying, you know, we're, you can't introduce any evidence saying that you went in a kind of mental evaluation. That's not going to help you at all. If you're pleading not guilty, then you're not guilty. You're not going to do this affirmative defense where you talk about your mental state. Uh, they were also able to throw out the evidence uh, related to the financial crimes of everything that was going on. Um, those cases were dismissed, as I mentioned earlier in the episode. If he's already going up for murder, they're not even going to deal with the financial stuff. So everything federally that was dealing with his misappro- misappropriation of funds from Medicaid and insurance is all gone. And uh, he got up on the stand, like I said. The cross-examination was very confrontational because the prosecutor had him dead to rights. He says, well, you told... You told you told these detectives at the time when you were arrested that you did these things. Were you lying? Mm-hmm. Yes or no? And he keeps 
dodging around it. He keeps there's several objections for him being non-responsive to questioning, which means essentially he's not answering what's being put before him. And he gets heated. He actually gets mad about it and uh, almost starts fighting back on the stand, which had to just be what was the nail in the coffin for him. Because, of course, uh, he was found guilty. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Uh, what was interesting about this case, just from a legal point of view, is that they did throw on an additional year for the cruelty to the animal for, for killing the family dog. And I, I think that was important because the jury that looked at him and saw that they, he had killed his wife, Megan, his son, Alec, Tyler, and Zoe, he's so depraved that he killed the dog too. You know, the, ki- killing the dog or not killing the dog doesn't affect anything in his life, but he, he killed every member of his family, including the dog. Kendra. Yeah. I, I think some people get really defensive because kind of like what you were saying, um, the dog, I think some people would look at that and be like, Oh, you care more about the dog than the kids. But that's not what I think. That's not the point. The point is that, like you said, it was it was completely and utterly useless to someone who has a motive to murder their family mm-hmm. because a dog is not a human and a dog doesn't do things to people. No. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. so you just murdered the dog because you just wanted to. Yep. There's no real reason. And that shows like if he murdered his family, but didn't murder the dog and then said, well, I went insane or I had this motive and that motive, at least you could kind of make some sort of logic like, okay, yeah, that. It makes sense in the mind of a murderer. Yeah. But right. there's no sense in killing a dog. <laughs> I, I, I think that, that just from a prosecutorial standpoint, though, it's brilliant because if you just put up the family, then, you know, you know you could say, uh, did he do this? Was he in his right mind? What happened? Was it Megan? But the dog also being killed, which obviously they don't care. Adding on the one year doesn't, doesn't do anything in terms of the sentence. Like I said, the financial crimes were dismissed, but they put in the dog because, every, you know, everyone understands what a dog means in a family and what it means that he killed the dog. It, it means something mm-hmm. that he did that. And it, and it suggests so much more about what the family meant to him, that it wasn't, that it wasn't right. about uh, any, any of his claims, that it was about someone who, who wanted to get away from his responsibilities to someone who wanted to avoid the shame. And unfortunately for him, his, uh, and unfortunately all around, his plan was all, only halfway formed. I, I firmly believe that when he killed them, he, his, his intention was is that he was going to commit suicide too. But then he, he just couldn't, he couldn't mount up to that. He couldn't decide that that's what he was going to do. He decided, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not go through with this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find some kind of life for myself. He's not even smart enough or able enough to go on the run or anything like that. And he just kind of waits weeks and weeks and weeks with the, in this house with his family. Uh, his his dead family, and just he, waits for consequences, I guess. Yeah, he claimed that he attempted suicide at least 10 times in the weeks that he was living in the home with them. Oh, yeah. And I'm sorry, no. but no, he he's like, I, tried to I purchased myself. a pellet gun. Yes, the pellet yeah. gun pissed me off because it's like, I couldn't get a regular gun. And I'm like, why couldn't you? You clearly did not. You clearly didn't want to kill yourself why because you, you had you no a, intention of doing that. No, why couldn't you get a regular gun? He said, I tried to get a pellet gun because I couldn't get a regular gun. Well, why couldn't you? Like, the, as far as I know, nothing from his background, you know, he hadn't been convicted on any of these white-collar crimes. He wasn't a felon yet, so far as I knew. Uh, you know, there's, there's, why couldn't he pass a background check? He was there in the in the house for weeks. There's, there's so the time limit on that. Even if you want to do it completely above board, he's got all the time in the world that he would need to do that. If you wanted to acquire a gun illegally or steal one, 
he would be able to do that if he wanted to throw himself. I mean, so many people kill themselves every day in interesting and innovative and mundane and totally normal ways. The idea that he attempted to hang himself, the idea that he attempted these these overdoses, that he attempted to shoot himself with a pellet gun, is laughable. There was no there was no credible suicide attempt. He might have taken some Benadryl at the time they showed up. Maybe he finally got scared and said, "I better go through with this." But you know, I don't I don't think any I don't think he was in that house feeling remorse for all these weeks and weeks and weeks. It is very easy to get a gun in Florida. It, just a private sale. Kendrick, it, Kendrick got a gun during this podcast. Right? Yeah, I was typing down here. You can't see me. Yeah. And um, Uber Eats just dropped it off. In yeah. fact, I gotta go. Yeah. Um, but it's very, very easy. So, to me, and also if you are truly suicidal and you are genuinely planning to to end your life. Um, steal, like you said, steal a gun. What are you going to go to jail? Yeah. Okay. I say that, um, not encouraging anyone. I'm just saying, I'm just saying what's the reasoning behind trying to, yeah, it just, there was no credible, there was no, like you said, no credible attempt. I'm sorry. This is a, there's plenty of ways that he could have done it if he, but I don't think he ever actually intended on doing it. No, I think he just murdered his family and. Didn't know what to do. He froze, so he just kept him in the house and waited, like you said, just waited for his consequence. Yeah. Because he's a wiener. Yes, I love it that uh, you put that on him, that he's a wiener. I love it. That's uh, that's your thing. Um, <laughs> terrible case. It's a tragedy. This really ripped up a lot of uh, investigators. When the sheriff gave his press conference about it, he was emotional. Reporters were upset by it. Uh, there's uh, some documentation that was being done by the deputies and the HHS guys as soon as they cleared the house. Uh, I don't know if they it was their report or whatever, but they were heard checking on each other like, hey, are you okay? And then and you could tell that they're not. Of course, they're not okay. Look what they just found. They just they just found a whole dead family, including a pet and three kids and this mother. And he's, you know, there. And uh, it, it really hurt a lot of people. I remember during the, during the interrogation and I'll, I'll close it out with this. At one point, he says, you know, like, uh, I'm going to see your family today. Do you, is there something you want me to tell them? You know, obviously, they're they're angry and they're hurt and they're upset and they don't understand this. And Anthony says, well, you know, I understand they feel that way. However, this was a decision we made as a family. So it's really not it's really not up to them. You know, he just he doesn't care about their family, their his extended family's feelings at all. He says, well, this was this was our decision to make and, and we made it. And uh, the investigators just like, you know. I saw what I saw. And, and to be honest with you, you know, I have two children too. And sometimes when I see these things, I just think, and it's, and it's almost a moment of trauma bonding between, uh, almost like a, a person at a therapist or, uh, two people that have survived something together where he's confessing the, the investigators confessing how much this case has affected him, which is not something a professional does. Of course, and I'm sure he didn't mean to do it. And I don't think it had any bearing on the case, but he's telling the suspect, like, look, what you did, like breaks my heart, you know? And uh, Anthony just can't be moved by it. He can't care. And that that's him all the way through. He, d- he doesn't love mm-hmm. anyone but himself. Correct. I agree. You, you put that perfectly. Thank you. I always do. Uh, <laughs> folks, Failure to Stop is a whole family of shows. We have over 100 shows per week now. Uh, starting on Sunday night, you can watch... Uh, <laughs> Conspiracy, government cover-ups, all kinds of cool stuff with Eric and Anthony. That's on Night Shift's Top Secret Investigation. They're on kind of their own separate channel. Go ahead and look for them. Watch and like it and subscribe to that show. It's an interesting one. On Monday night, you got Uncuffed, where J. Darrell White breaks down pop culture and issues from a police perspective. 
but it's a comedic show, so they're going to have a good time and laugh, which probably should come after this show since we were uh, so so dour and downbeat tonight with this horrible, depressing <laughs> story. Maybe we'll have to shake things up. Tuesday, you can find us here every week. We're going to do true crime. On Wednesday, you can find all the political news that you need. Uh, that's with uh, Deadleg on Last Call. On Thursday, it's a new show. It's called Illegal Shift, which is uh, a pun so deep that I might just be too clever uh, for my own good. I'm not sure anyone likes that. But me and Jason, we talk about what's going on in uh, the world of sports. Uh, sometimes uh, some controversial stuff, sometimes just telling you what happened in the weeks of football. But it's a good time over there. If you haven't seen it before, I encourage you to give it a shot. We're entertaining. Even if you're not into sports, you know, we try to have a good time. On Friday, you can watch the Big Case Breakdown. That's with Eric and Tyler. They've had a couple of interesting shows lately with uh, Jonathan Emord. They're going to keep going. Uh, hopefully some big announcements will be coming out soon about people that we can have on the show. We appreciate you. Like I said, uh, go to our sponsors. Go to uh, Ghostbed. Go to Factor Meals. They support us. They keep us going. Give us a five-star rating review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, wherever you listen. Make sure you click like and subscribe, folks. We're trying to get up over 8,000 uh, subscribers on YouTube. That would be a huge mark for us to make. We're only about 100 people away. So tell a friend. Tell them to subscribe. Uh, share this with a friend. This is how our podcast can grow. If we're not growing, then we're shrinking. Uh, so help us uh, go in strong into 2024. We appreciate it. On behalf of Kendra, guns up, giddy up, good night, and don't get yourself true crime. Good night. <laughs> and stay safe. Stay safe. Good night. Bye.